Okay, guys. We are going to get started here. It's, uh, it's really good to be here with you guys. You, you will never believe what I got to do this morning. I, I caught a squirrel in my backyard. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I caught a squirrel. Me and Ashley, we have, we have chickens. We just got chickens recently. And I went out to open up the, the chicken coop door. And there's a squirrel in like the chicken run area, like just flying all over the place. And I caught it with a box. It's crazy. Has nothing to do with my sermon, but I just thought it was hilarious that I, I woke up this morning and wanted to kind of run through my, you know, my sermon notes. And I ended up uh, wasting 15 minutes trying to catch a squirrel in my backyard. So pretty funny. Um, yeah, I actually just want to open up with a, with a question. What is your, what's your purpose? What's your why in life? Like, why are you here? Why are you breathing? Why are you on this earth? What's your purpose? It's a huge question, but I think with any, like, big endeavor, there needs to be a good reason, right? It's silly to, to set out to do something and not have a reason for why you're doing it, and Life is a pretty big thing that we're all doing. So what's our reason? Why are we here? As Christians, we have access to an awesome purpose. It's an eternal purpose. It's actually one of my favorite things about following Jesus is the purpose that he's given me and that I've found in my relationship with him. It is a huge purpose that we have, a huge reason, a huge why to our life. And, and, and this is what it is. It's to know God and make him known. That's our purpose. When I do evangelism on campus, I love asking people, you know, like, what's your purpose? And a lot of people are like, I don't really know. Or, or people say, like, ah, to make the world a better place. Or they might have something that sounds nice. Um, or, or people will talk about how they're trying to figure out what their purpose is. And I'm really thankful that, that as a Christian and us as Christians, we have our purpose laid out for us. It's to know God and to make him known. In Mark chapter 3, 14, uh, Jesus, it says he appointed the 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Jesus chose the 12 um, so that they might know him and then be sent out to go make him known. And that's the same purpose that we have. We see uh, the second part of that purpose, to make him known. We see it again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Grant preached on this a few weeks back. Jesus said to his disciples, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There Jesus is, is kind of giving the, the disciples the second part of their purpose, to make him known. You're going you're gonna to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we have access to that same purpose. I would say that's why you're here, to make him known and to know him. Today, we're, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, um, and in Acts 4, we're going to see Peter and John really live out the, the second part of that purpose, making Jesus known. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Like, mo most of what I'm going to be communicating about today is, is very evangelism-focused, very outward-focused, very, like, making God known-focused. And what we'll see from Peter and John and, and through the whole book of Acts is that these people we're reading about, they lived a lifestyle of evangelism. Making Jesus known was just a part of their lifestyle. It wasn't like a thing that they scheduled in their week to go and do. It was just how they lived. They lived out a lifestyle of evangelism. And in this chapter, Acts chapter 4, it's kind of like a master class on what living a lifestyle of evangelism looks like. So with, with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Jesus, we just thank you that you give us purpose, and that the purpose that we can find in you is greater than any other purpose we can find in this life, to know you and to make you known. And God, I pray that, that through this morning, through what I have to say, that Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd speak to people, that you'd draw people into your presence, and that you would also empower us as a body to make you known to the campus that we're on and to the, the city that we live in and our families and our friends. We, wanna, we want to make you known because you are worthy and you're amazing. So I pray that that would happen this morning. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
So uh, before jumping into Acts 4, I think it's, it's necessary to kind of recap what happened in Acts 3, which if you were at Life Group Thursday, um, we, we went through Acts chapter 3. I love, I love the way we've been doing this sermon series this summer where we've got, we're going through Acts on Thursdays in Life Group, and then we're doing it on Sundays. Pretty soon we'll be sending out some like guided readings for you guys. We're going to cover the whole book this summer. Um, but really what we talked about Thursday ties very closely into what I'm going to be preaching on today. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, what we talked about at Life Group was Peter and John are going into the temple. Okay, they're, they're going into the temple, and there's this lame beggar, this crippled man who's uh, begging for money outside the temple. And Peter and John look at him, and, and Peter says, bro, silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we'll give you. Get up and walk. And this dude supernaturally is healed and restored. And, and not only is, is he, like, just able to stand up and walk, but he's, like, leaping and jumping and running around. And this is causing some commotion. Like, people, uh, like, it grabs people's attention. And so Peter and John go into the temple. And at this point, there's, like, a crowd. Like, there's people really, you know, trying to figure out what it is that's happening. Because this is a dude that they've seen outside the temple uh, for a long time. He's there every single day, and now he's running around, totally healed. Oh my goodness, what's happening? And so Peter and John, they're at this, this um, place called Solomon's Portico. A portico is like a colonnaded porch or an entrance to a structure. Um, it's kind of like what we have outside of Probasco Auditorium with these big pillars. That's like a portico. portico. So imagine Peter standing, you know, outside Probasco Auditorium in this portico, and he's got a, a big group of very curious people in front of him. And so what does he do? He uses it as an opportunity to preach the gospel. And so he preaches the gospel, um, and what happens is a few people get a little upset about the fact that he's preaching the gospel in the temple, having just healed this crippled man who'd been crippled for 40 years. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. So the way I'm going to work through Acts 4, I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. Um, I'm just going to read it like a section at a time. And I'm going to pull out some key takeaways that I think will help us live a lifestyle of evangelism. Uh, and that's really my goal today. I want to just, I want to challenge you guys. I want to challenge our church to be missional. To, to be a people that live lives where a high, like our highest priority is making Jesus known, knowing him and making him known. So I'm going to pull 10 different um, elements out of this story to challenge you in living a life where you make Jesus known and living a lifestyle of evangelism. Sound good? Yeah? Ready to jump in? Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited to work through this, this chapter with you guys this morning. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They were greatly annoyed. <laughs> These religious leaders were greatly annoyed at what Peter and John were doing. And, and my first point that I want to make is that many people are not going to like the gospel. But don't let that stop you. Don't let that stop you from sharing it. Many people are not going to, they're just not going to like the gospel, the message of Jesus. What you have to say, they're not going to like it. But don't let that stop you. This, this last sermon series we were in, Kingdom Culture, we spent the whole semester um, really digging into the fact that the culture of the world that we live in and the culture of God's kingdom are at odds with each other. There is a conflict between the kingdom that we're a part of and, and the world that we live in. And the world that we live in d does not like Jesus. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world in the scripture is not, it's not talking about God. It's talking about Satan. That's a name given to the devil, the God of this world. And, and what's his agenda? To blind people from seeing the light of the gospel. 
That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to blind the world around us, the world that we live in, from seeing the light of the gospel of Jesus. And he's pretty good at what he does. The, the culture we live in is not the most fond of the Jesus that we follow. But church, we cannot let that stop us. We can't let that keep us quiet about the gospel. We need to be a people that are busy sowing seeds, not evaluating soils. And, and here's what I mean by that. When I say we need to be a, bit, a people busy sowing seeds, not evaluating soils, Jesus has this parable that he shares in the gospel where um, he's talking about four different soil conditions, four different types of soils. And these soils each represent the condition of human hearts, okay, and, and people's receptivity to the gospel. And, and I'll just run you through them really quick. Uh, the first soil, in seed, by the way, is like the gospel. It's the word of God. And so the, the first soil condition is the path. These are people that, you know, they, they hear the gospel, they hear the word of God, um, but the seed doesn't take root and birds come and they just pick up the seed and they, they take it away and nothing happens. These are people that might hear the, hear the gospel, they might hear about Jesus, and they're just like, no, nah, I'm not buying it, not interested. And then there's people who are like rocky soil, dirt that's full of rocks, and the, the word of God is planted, um, the seed's sown, but... Uh, and it takes root, right? But then it, when it gets hot, the, the, the sun kind of burns up the plant. Because it doesn't have deep roots, it dies. These are people that hear the word of God, they believe it. They say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But then when life gets hard and challenges come and persecution comes, they flake. And they're like, nah, I'm not. I didn't sign up for this. And then there's people that are, uh, that, that are thorny soil, right? This is soil that's... that's um, got weeds and thorns and all kind of other stuff growing up in it, and the seed's planted and it grows, but it's, as it grows, it's choked by thorns and weeds and all this other stuff, and it becomes unfruitful. It, it continues living, but it doesn't produce anything. These are people that believe in Jesus. They want to follow Jesus, but they're preoccupied with other stuff. They're preoccupied with the cares of this world and with riches and just other things, and so they don't produce anything for the kingdom. And then there's the good soil that gets deeply rooted and it grows and it produces fruit. These are people that actually follow Jesus. And I think that we as Christians, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we spend so much time evaluating soils, making sure that we, we like, if I'm going to share the gospel with someone, I need to make sure they're the right soil. I need to make sure that, like, you know, they're probably going to believe and they're probably going to receive what I have to say well and that, you know, they're, they're going to grow up and follow Jesus. But in this story, like, Seed is sown into all four of these soil conditions. And us as Christians, like, we need to spend much less time trying to evaluate soils and much more time sowing seeds. I do not want to go to heaven with any seeds left in my pocket. You know, there's nothing wrong with sowing seed, sharing the gospel with a person that just ends up being the path. And the enemy comes and takes up the, the word that you've shared with them, and they just totally reject it. That's okay. That really is Okay. It's okay if you share Jesus with a person and they don't like what you have to say. It didn't stop Peter and John, right? They preached the gospel and it greatly annoyed some powerful, important people. But it didn't stop them. Think of like Saul. Oh my gosh, Paul, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. If I was a Christian, if I was Peter and John... I guarantee you they did not think that Saul was good soil. <laughs> this is a dude that's actively persecuting Christians. But we serve a very capable God that's capable of bringing people to himself, even if they seem hard-hearted, even if they seem like they're the path or the rocky soil or the thorny soil. Let's be a people that are busy sowing seeds, not evaluating soils. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick up in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Referring to the miracle, the man that had been healed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And I'll pause there. This is kind of a scary moment for Peter and John. They've been arrested. 
They're in custody. The next day, they get put on trial. And do you know who's trying them? It's the people that put Jesus to death. Caiaphas. Like, these people had just, they were responsible for the death of Peter and John's rabbi. <laughs> Their best friend, the guy that they'd been following for three years. And now they find themselves arrested on trial before these very men who had just killed their rabbi, their leader. This is a scary moment. I would be scared in this moment. I would probably temper what I was going to say. I, you know, I'd probably try to weasel out of the situation. I think that I would probably be full of fear in this moment. Wouldn't you? If you were arrested and standing before people that had just killed one of your best friends. But it doesn't say Peter was filled with fear. What's it say? It says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so my second point is if we want to live a lifestyle of evangelism, we need to be filled with the Spirit, not filled with fear. We need to be led by the Spirit, not by fear. I think that fear is the primary thing that keeps us from living a lifestyle of evangelism. Fear. I think it's fear. When's the last time fear led any of us to a great breakthrough in life? <laughs> When's the last time fear, like opened up some awesome, you know, door of, of potential or, or led us into some great opportunity. Never. Fear is not our friend, okay? Especially when it comes to kingdom things. If fear is leading us and influencing us through this life, we will never live out our potential. Living a, an effective life in the kingdom of God, living a lifestyle of evangelism, looks like doing things that are scary. Just think of the, the, the Bible, like the story that we read often that I'm preaching out of this morning. Try to think of one important character in the Bible that didn't have to do something that was terrifying. I cannot think of any. I was, I was trying to this week as I was preparing. I cannot think of one person in the Bible that didn't have to do something that was really, really scary. But I think, I think fear is, it's like a platform for the voice of the enemy in our life. And I think some of the things that we fear that keep us from living a lifestyle of evangelism are so, they're so silly when you, when you think of eternity. Like we fear things like, like looking different from people around us. I do. I, I fear looking different. I fear being different. That's the thing that keeps me from sharing the gospel often. Or like I don't want to be weird. I don't want to look weird to this person. If the conversation is, is, you know, surface level about just typical small talk stuff, man, if I, like, bring Jesus into that, that's probably just going to come off weird. And I'm kind of scared of coming off weird, so no. Or we fear rejection, a person just rejecting us, not wanting anything to do with us, or, or a maybe a tainted reputation or losing something, losing a relationship. Guys, none of those things are worthy of our fear. In, in, the, in light of eternity, who cares if you look a little weird to someone? It doesn't matter. Who cares if you get rejected by someone for following Jesus and loving Jesus? You know, if you do, you're in good company. Because a lot of awesome people we read about in the Bible rejected because of what they believed. The things that we fear are so silly, but we let these things lead us, oftentimes more than we let the Holy Spirit lead us. The only thing worthy of our fear is God. Matthew 10, 28 through 33, I love this scripture. It speaks so clearly into this. It says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But, if, but, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I love this scripture because at the beginning it says, uh, fear not. And then right after it says, fear him. So it's funny, we're, we're commanded here to fear not, but also to fear him. I think what the scripture is saying is that, that God alone is worthy of our fear. And when we properly fear him, 
we will in turn fear nothing else. Does that make sense? I think that when we, when we live life with a fear of God, with an awe and with a reverence for God, like we will not be afraid of anything else. I, th- I think of moments in my life where I ha- like encountered God in such like a powerful way where I, where I would say I feared him the most, where I, you know, maybe like I, I think of a specific moment right now in, in a worship setting where it was like God was in the room almost. Like his presence was there. I was encountering him and, and like it was almost tangible. And I just, just understood the majesty and the might and the power and the, the supremacy and the awesomeness of God. And in that moment, I, I, it's like, it's terrifying. But at the same time, it's so comforting because this is the God who loves me. So the scripture, we're commanded to not fear those who can do harm to our body. Rather, fear him, fear God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And I think Peter got this. I don't think he was scared at all of the religious leaders that he was standing in front of. I, think he had, I don't think he had an ounce of fear in him because I think he fully feared the God that he worshipped and followed. I think it's, I think, a, a, you know, kind of in fearing God, an appropriate thing to fear is even fearing the fact that people are going to end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. I think that's a thing that's worth fearing. I had a, I have a friend um, from an East Asian country. He was a, a, a exchange student. He was here for a semester. And uh, a bunch of people, you know, shared the gospel with him. He never heard about Jesus before. And God really moved in his life while he was here in America. He's back home now. Um, and I remember the, the day before he was going to go to the airport, I met with him uh, at the 86. And, and I remember the night before that, I was just thinking, like, my friend, like, he knows about Jesus. He has not decided to follow Jesus yet. And if he were to die, he'd go to hell. Like, he doesn't know God. He hasn't surrendered his life to Jesus. And I remember that just, like, hit me so hard that night before. And I, it, it made me afraid for him. And I, I remember going into that meeting with, like, this, this holy fear and this love for him. Like, I, I want to be with him forever. I love him. He's my friend. I, I don't want him to end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. And I, I went into that meeting with, like, this sense of urgency, and he didn't decide to follow Jesus. Um, but I have a lot of hope that he will. But I think that's an appropriate thing to fear, the fact that people are going to end up on the wrong side of God's judgment. And, guys, as, as I talk about fear, like, there's going to be times where you feel fear in your body. My, my challenge and exhortation, though, is that you not let fear lead you. Does that make sense? Don't let fear lead you. Don't let fear influence your decisions, especially when it comes to being obedient to convictions God's put on your life. Paul experienced fear. 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5. Paul is talking about the, the state that he was in when he was with the Corinthian church when he first came to them. And he says, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is saying, when I was with you, Corinthians, I was, I was fearful. And I don't have time to get into all of why Paul was fearful in this moment, but he was experiencing fear. But did Paul let fear lead him? No. He did not let fear lead him. What did he let lead him? The Holy Spirit. He, he said, um, my speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, but demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Even though he was experiencing fear and feeling afraid, he did not let fear lead him or influence him. He let the Holy Spirit lead him and influence him and guide him. So church, let's, if we want to live a lifestyle of evangelism, we cannot let fear lead us through life. It will not lead you anywhere good, I promise. <laughs> let's let the Holy Spirit lead us. Okay, next point, picking up in verse 9. This is Peter's response. So he's full of the Holy Spirit. This is what he, what he responds with. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was, has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him this man is standing before you well. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's kind of funny. Peter, <laughs> he, he got into this situation by preaching the gospel. You know, they didn't arrest him and become greatly annoyed with him because the dude was healed. They became annoyed with him because he was preaching the gospel. So they arrest him, they bring him out, they're interrogating him, and what does he do? He just preaches the gospel again. And I love this about Peter, and this is my, my third point. Preach the gospel, and then keep, keep preaching the gospel. I think that Peter's attitude was like, I am going to preach the gospel as often as I can to many, as many people as I can, no matter what. Any chance that I get, if anyone is listening, I'm going to be preaching the gospel. And I want to live like that. I want to live like that because I think many people die and go to hell because Christians don't share the gospel. And that's a sad thing to say, but it's true. Many people die and go to hell because Christians do not share the gospel. I was, found this statistic this week. It is one of the worst statistics I've ever found. It made me so sad. Only three in ten unchurched Americans say that a Christian has ever shared with them one-on-one -on -one how a person becomes a Christian. Three in ten, only three in ten unchurched people, that is people in America that have no prior church experience. They don't come from a Christian family. They've never been to church. They're not Christians. They would not identify as being a Christian. Only three out of ten have had a Christian sit with them one-on-one -on -one and explain with them how to begin a relationship with Jesus. 30%. It means seven out of every 10 non-Christian people have never had a believer explain to them how to start a relationship with Jesus. That, is, that sucks. When we don't preach the gospel, people don't get saved. And when we do preach the gospel, people do get saved. I have um, had the privilege of going overseas twice. I spent a summer in India uh, after my sophomore year in college, and then my wife and I and a handful of people from this church, we went to Nepal this past summer. And my, both experiences were amazing. I learned so much in both of these, both of these trips. Uh, my, my first trip to India, we were in kind of a dangerous area, and, and the, the team I was with and the culture just of, you know, just the way that they did missions was so much different from how we did in Nepal. In India, we were like, the team was like very, very careful and conservative with sharing the gospel. Like, we, we didn't really share the gospel very much. I heard people on my team share the gospel over the course of a whole summer with non-believers maybe like two or three times. The whole time I was there. And, you know, God was moving. Like, God was still doing good work. There's still believers in that area praying and, and loving and building relationships with non-Christians in that area. But... My experience in Nepal this past summer was radically different. The culture of the team there, they were like, we are going to preach the gospel as loud and proud as much as we possibly can. Every single day we were preaching the gospel. And it was illegal. Like evangelism technically is illegal there, but they're like, it's fine. We're just going to do it anyways. And guess what? They, saw, they see so many people get saved. They see revival and slums. Like, just in the time we were there, we saw people give their lives to Jesus in these slums, and we, we still are in touch with them. And there's literally, like, a revival happening in that slum. There's a church there now. And tons of people have gotten saved. Families. It's because they're preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel, people get saved. When we don't preach the gospel, people don't get saved. It's simple. Peter got this. The early church got this. That's why they were constantly preaching the gospel, and then again preaching the gospel, and then again preaching the gospel. Because Romans 1.16, it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That message, that story gives people an opportunity to be saved. So it is so if there's one thing that's coming out of our mouth, it should be the gospel. It's the best news that's ever happened. I want to be like Peter. I want us to be like Peter and see the, the opportunities that are in front of us every single day because there are. There are opportunities everywhere, every day. 
We just have to have eyes to see them. Uh, Paul Wooster at, at uh, H2O Conference, he had this quote, and I loved it. He said, the best kind of evangelism is the kind that you do. So good. The best kind of evangelism is the kind that you do. <laughs> Not the kind that you talk about doing. Not just the kind that you study about doing, but the kind that you actually do. I want to be a church. I want us to be a people that share the gospel. And if you don't know how to do that, if you don't know how to communicate the gospel, that is fine. Talk with a leader or a staff person in our church. Meet up with them and, and ask them, like, hey, please teach me how to do this. And we will. We'd be happy to. That message is the power of God for salvation. So let's share it. Then there's a second point from this, that, that last section of Scripture it ends by Peter saying, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And my next point, my fourth point, is there is no, there's only one path to salvation. There's only one path. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. There is only one path to salvation, and his name is Jesus. And we live in a world, in a culture of relativism, Right? And while, while your truth being your truth and my truth being my truth might sound nice and inclusive, it's not the gospel. It isn't. And if we conform to that belief, what we're really saying is, Jesus, you died for no reason. What did Jesus say in the garden? He said, Father, if there's any other way, if there is any other way for man to be reconciled to you, let this cup pass for me, but my, not my will, but yours be done. Was there another way? No, that's why Jesus had to take the cross and receive the cup of God's wrath and be punished for our sin because that's the only way. And so if we, if we adopt that idea that, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, you believe what you believe, all paths lead to the same destination, we're actually spitting in Jesus' face. We're saying you came for no reason, you died for no reason, what you did is pointless. That's what we're saying. A false, in a false gospel is a powerless gospel. A false gospel is not the power of God for salvation. And, and while, this, while what I'm talking about right now might feel narrow and exclusive, we need to understand that the gospel is the most inclusive thing ever. It is radically inclusive. Everybody is invited. Everybody. It doesn't matter how bad you are. I, I, have, I have friends that have literally killed someone. And they know Jesus now, and they've been born again and radically transformed, and they're a new creation, and they love Jesus. Like, everyone is invited. I'm just going to rattle off a few scriptures. Acts 2.21. We talked about this a couple weeks ago at Life Group. It says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation 7, 9. This is John's vision of heaven. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every nation, every language, every people, every tribe is invited and will be there in heaven. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a scripture in Peter that says God desires none should perish but that everyone should reach repentance. Everyone is invited. And it's a, it's a narrow path. And it's a narrow gate. It's hard. Following Jesus is hard. It's not easy. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. Your life isn't about you anymore. But Everyone is invited to be a part of this. And the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, it's for everyone. And all we have to do is believe. <laughs> so yes, while saying Jesus is the only way, not one of many ways, feels narrow and exclusive, the gospel is radically inclusive and everyone's invited. That's another reason why we should be people that share this message often. Because if, if someone doesn't hear about Jesus through you, who, who are they going to hear about him through? You know, if not you, then who? Let's move on. Picking up in verse 13. 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished. Well, that's half the verse. We'll read the rest in a second. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. The the point I want to make here is that God will use anyone. (laughs) You don't need to know much to change the world. And living a life where, you're knowing, where your priorities are knowing God and making him known, like if you're doing that, you will change the world. That sounds like a, you know, kind of a cheesy thing to say, like I want to change the world. But like actually it's true. I mean, we get to be involved in the transformation of not only people's lives on earth, but their destination forever. Like what bigger thing is there to be a part of than that? God can partner with you to influence whether a person spends eternity away from him or with him. That is such a higher calling and more exciting thing to be a part of than trying to get people to Mars or, you know, building cool cars or making a bunch of money. Like, that is amazing. You can influence people's eternity. And you can be a common person to do that. You don't, there doesn't, you don't have to have anything special about you. You don't even need to be educated. The rabbis, these brainiacs who understood the Torah more than anyone else, they're like, man, these guys are uneducated. They're common. Like, they're just ordinary dudes. And it says they were astonished. And and that's the the point I want to make is that God is not looking for the best, best and brightest. He's looking for those who are willing and obedient. That's all he needs. He doesn't need you to be brilliant. He just needs you to be willing. He needs your yes. That's it. And if you give him your yes, he'll use you. (laughs) And he'll do awesome things through you. All he needs is your yes. Peter, John, these were men who, they were just surrendered to God. And the Holy Spirit does not discriminate. He's just looking for lives that are laid down. You are qualified to be effective in God's kingdom. You are, you're needed. And you have access to a purpose that, transcends all other purposes. Pick up, I'll pick up at the, the second part of that verse. So they're astonished, and they recognize that these men had been with Jesus. So I'm just going to read that all together. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived their uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? If we want to live a lifestyle of evangelism, being a person that has just been with Jesus is step one. And have you? Have you been with Jesus? Can people tell that you have been with Jesus? Can they? By the way that you talk, by the way you work, by the way you act, by the way that you you treat your family and your friends, can people tell that you've been with Jesus? What about your life gives it away that you've been with Jesus? Or is it that when people look at our lives, we we just, we look very similar to the average non-Christian? I hope not. I hope that's not the answer. But if it is, there's an easy remedy. Go be with Jesus. (laughs) You you become like the, the people that you're around. And if you live a life where your priority is just being with Jesus. He will change you. And people will be able to tell. Peter and John, like, they had lived with this man for three years. The way that he acted, the way that he, he lived and did ministry and spoke and taught and just his, his countenance, I think, even. Just all of that stuff rubbed off on these men. And the Pharisees, they're like, man, these guys are just, they're uneducated. They're common dudes. Like, how are they doing these things? Oh, oh, I know what it is. They'd been with Jesus. Dude, I I want people to be able to say that about my life. There's a scripture that I think it connects to this idea. Um, It's just the first scripture that came to my mind when I was thinking about this. Exodus 34, verse 29 talks about Moses. Uh, Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai to, to get the Ten Commandments. He was up there for a really long time. 
And he comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses was with God, and he didn't even know it, but he comes down and, like, just being with God made him literally, like, shine. I'd love to have been there to just see what this looked like. When I try to imagine it, it's kind of silly, but, like, just being with God caused him to shine. And, you know, we're probably not going to literally, uh, like, radiate with real light if we're with Jesus or in his presence. But, But do you shine because you've been with God? I think it's possible for him to rub off on us in such a way where people just, they just know. They can just tell. And if we want to live a lifestyle of evangelism, I, th- I think that's, that's like, this is the most important thing. I'd love to have gotten to talk about this one first, but it just didn't work that way in the scripture. But this is everything right here. This is everything right here. There's this cool, uh, this cool little thing I, I found a few years back. In John 8, 12, Jesus is speaking, and he says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. That's something we've all heard. In Matthew 5, 14, he's speaking to his disciples and says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's interesting. In one scripture, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. And then in another place, he's saying, you are the light of the world. How do we be what Jesus said we are in Matthew 5? I think the simple answer is by being with him. Being with him. And as we're with him, we become light to the people around us. If you want to be like Jesus, you just need to be with Jesus. And the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, the campus that we're on, needs people who have just been with Jesus. I'll move on here, picking up in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Dude, that's like a mic drop right there. That's awesome. They're like, dude, we're, we're not, they're pretty much like, we're not going to do what you're telling us to do. <laughs> these are the guys that had killed their rabbi. Keep it in mind. And they're like, we're just going to keep talking about what we've seen and heard. And that's my next, my next point. To, to live a lifestyle of evangelism, we need simply to just speak of what we've seen and heard. The things that you have seen God do and the things that you have heard from him, whether it's in scripture or just revelation that you've had or things that you've learned, like, those are some of the best and most powerful witnessing tools that you have. No one can debate something that you've seen God do. If God showed up in a powerful way in your life, and you just share that story with someone, like, what, I mean, what are they going to, they can't argue with it. It's your experience. And the experience that, that Peter and John had had, the things that they had seen and heard, like, they can't be refuted. They just, they're like, bro, this is what we've, this is what happened. We're going to talk about what happened Our best friend raised from the dead, like, we're going to talk about that. He healed people, like, we're going to talk about that. And they did. And I think for us, too, the things that we've just seen and heard God do, they are some of the most powerful witnessing tools that you have. And I'd encourage you, learn to just regularly share stories of the things that you've seen God do and the things that he's taught you. And it says in in verse 14, this is funny, it says they had nothing to say in opposition. (laughs) God's word speaks for itself because he's real. Like God's real. The God we follow is real. He's not just an idea or philosophy. He's the one true living God. He's real. And his work speaks speaks for itself. As I was thinking about this, I I thought about my 
I have so many testimonies of things that I've seen God do that are powerful and compelling, but the one that came to my mind this week for some reason was my sister. My sister um, had a really rough past with infertility. She got married in her late 20s, and uh, her and her husband wanted to have kids right away, and she got pregnant. It's exciting. You know, you're going to have a baby. Miscarriage. You know, and then, and then she, you know, they mourn. They're really sad. It's hard, traumatic. Uh, I know people in our church have had miscarriages. It's a really hard thing to go through. And after some time, got pregnant again. Miscarriage. And they started getting, like, kind of looping doctors into this and getting some opinions from doctors and running blood work and tests. And as they're doing that, she gets pregnant again. Miscarriage. And at that point, doctors had, had recognized, like, all three of your pregnancies, the, the baby had this condition called triploidy. It's like a rare genetic condition where the, the baby produces uh, double, the, like a, an extra set of chromosomes, and it dies in the womb. And if you have multiple of those, there's a really good chance there's some type of genetic issue in the mother. And so that's what they told her. Like, you most likely have this disorder that's going to end in every pregnancy turning into a miscarriage. And they, you know, told her the options. They told her, you're not going to be able to have a baby apart from medical intervention. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, her, her and, and my brother-in-law, after the appointment, they're, they're having a conversation. And my sister is just like, she's like, I just feel, I feel like God wants us to try again. And so they went and they got prayer from the, the elders of their church, James style, you know, the, the elders of the church gathered and they anointed them with oil and prayed for them. And, um, Shortly after, my sister got pregnant and had a healthy baby, <laughs> no medical intervention. Then she got pregnant again and had a healthy baby. And then she got pregnant again and had a healthy baby. And it's like, what do, what do you say about that? Like, doctors told her, you will not be able to have a child apart from medical intervention. She has three that are healthy. God's work speaks for itself. I have tons of other stories I could share because, like, God's real. <laughs> he's real and he's active. And even more so than miracles, I, I think the most compelling thing that we can, that we have seen and heard that we can just talk about is our own story. That's the most compelling miracle of all, the, the transformative, redemptive work of God in our own soul, bringing us from death to life, making us a new person. If you are in Christ, you have a story of him Bringing you who were dead to life. That is a story worth sharing. You, you don't have a boring story. I don't like it when people say that. It's not true. You were brought from death to life. That's something that you've seen and heard from God. That's a story worth sharing. And if you don't know how to share your faith story, I encourage you to practice. Get with a leader or a staff person in our church and practice sharing your story, and they can help you and coach you and how to do that effectively. But that is a story that is worth sharing to people. I love to do uh, gospel appointments with, with non-believers that I meet with. There's people in this room I've done gospel appointments with where I sit down with them, and I, I might outline, it's my story, your story, God's story. I just share my story, how I met Jesus. I ask them for their story, and then I share God's story. I share the gospel with them. I've seen a lot of people meet Jesus through doing this. It's powerful. It's it's what the things that you have seen and heard from God are some of the most powerful tools you have in living a lifestyle of evangelism. Okay, let's move on. I need to hustle here. Picking up in verse 21. When they, had hurt, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all of them were praising God for what had happened. The, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said. So the leaders, they release Peter and John. What do Peter and John do? They go back to their friends and they pray. They lift their voices together to God. They pray. And that's my next point. In living a lifestyle of evangelism, prayer must be our go-to. Prayer must be our go-to. And the unfortunate thing is often prayer is the first thing to go. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the first go-to, it's the first thing to go. It's like the thing that we'll do if we have extra time. It's so frustrating. It's such a hard, like, rhythm to establish in our lives. Like, but I even have to confess, like, the way that I'll think about it, 
so annoying that, that this is this way, but like I'll have my week planned out. You know, I'm on staff, I'm on campus every day. And if like a meeting gets canceled, then I'll be like, oh, I could take this as like an hour to pray. And it's so frustrating because that should be my first go-to. But instead, it's kind of like that last thing that I'll fit in if I have time. And I think that, that a lot of times we don't see God move because we don't pray. The early church depended on prayer. And I think that a lack of dependence on prayer shows that we trust our strength more than God's strength. When we don't pray, it means we trust ourselves more than him. We think that we're more capable than him. But just prayer in and of itself, like when you just think about it, you're in, a, you're in a difficult situation or you have a person in your life that you really want to meet Jesus and the first thing that you do, you're just like, God, help me. Like you just go to him in prayer. What does that communicate? It shows that, that you trust that, that he's the one that has the answers. He's the one that's capable, not you. But instead, prayer is like this, this thing that we tack on. I think it's part of why we're not as effective as we could be. It's because we don't depend on God in prayer, especially when it comes to evangelism and, and trying to help people meet Jesus in our life. If you want to see God move in a person's life, pray for them until he does. I think that's the attitude that we should have, not if you want to see God move in, in someone's life, pray that he does. But no, no, pray until he does. Colossians 4.12, this is the King James Version. I like this version of this verse more. Paul, he says, he's talking about Epaphras. Epaphras, he's closing out a letter. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Paul's talking about this guy, Epaphras, referring to him as someone who labors in prayer fervently. Have you ever labored in prayer? I don't know if I have, maybe a few times. I want to be a person that labors in prayer because I trust God's strength more than my strength. God answers prayer. I'm going to rattle off three scriptures in John. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. <laughs> that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit may abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John 16, 23, in that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you get the point? We have a God that answers prayers. So let's let prayer be our first go-to. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the rest of the scripture. Picking up in verse 24. This is their actual prayer. This is Peter and John and their friends actually praying. This is what they pray. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. My next point is, is that to be effective in living a lifestyle of evangelism, we must be filled with the Spirit. And I kind of already talked about this, but I'm, I'm going to hit it from a different angle. To be effective, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. The disciples here, they, they don't know what to do. They go to prayer they ask God, like, hey, God, they're, pretty much their request is, God, just keep empowering us. Keep giving us boldness to preach your word faithfully to people. And what happens? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that the, the early church, the disciples, they knew that the Holy Spirit was not optional for ministry. They knew that if they wanted to succeed in the mission and purpose Jesus gave them, their only hope at being successful in that was through the power of the Holy Spirit. We, and like, dude, you, man, you even just think about 
Earlier, we, we glossed over that scripture. It said that the, their number at that point was 5,000 people. This is like a huge movement now. In a short amount of time, there's now 5,000 people following Jesus. The only way that that is possible to happen is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples knew this. They knew that they were uneducated common men. They knew that they were incapable in their own strength of carrying out the mission and purpose Jesus gave them. So they utterly depended on the Holy Spirit. But I think that we don't live this way. I think that in Western Christianity, we treat just at large, we treat the Holy Spirit as this like optional thing. You know, where there's like some, some Holy Spirit churches and other churches are like kind of more conservative and like they don't really talk about that kind of stuff as much. And it's like, guys, no, th- this is just the gospel. Like this is just Christianity. This is the book of Acts. Like this is what they did. Like it, we serve a supernatural God and his plan is to put his spirit in Christians to do ministry and to, to partner with him in, in things that are supernatural that we can't do on our own. The Holy Spirit is not optional. The Holy Spirit is not a preference that people can have when looking for a church or whatever. It's supposed to be normal Christianity. And the interesting thing is, like, I, I read the, the language here. The place in which they're gathered together was shaken, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. As I was reading this, I'm like, didn't this just happen? Like, didn't we just read about this in, like, Acts 2 at Life Group, right? We did in Acts 2, right? The, the Holy Spirit comes through like a wind, and these flames of fire come on them, and they're, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they started speaking in these other tongues, and 3,000 people got saved that day. And then just two chapters later, again, like, the place that they're in is shaken. There's, like, some type of earthquake, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit again. And then you keep reading in Acts, and in a few, in a few more chapters, they're filled with the Holy Spirit again. And it's like, why does this, this keep happening? You know, I, I think that the way we view the Holy Spirit, it's like Ephesians 1.13. It says, in him, you too, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That, that happens. When you believe in Jesus the Holy Spirit comes into you, period. But what we see throughout Acts is like these disciples continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. And as I was thinking about this, it made me think of Ephesians 5.18. It's an interesting scripture. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the context of that scripture doesn't really have much to do with wine or drunkenness. Um, and so I think he's, Paul is making a point about being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's like, yeah, sure, don't get drunk with wine. But how do you get drunk with wine? What do you do? You, you drink it, right? And then you, you, you drink more of it. And then you drink more of it. And then you drink more. You don't just, like, take a sip, and then all of a sudden you're drunk, right? That doesn't happen. Hopefully none of us are getting drunk with wine. Don't do that. Don't get drunk with wine. But I think it's similar with the Spirit. Like, yes, we get filled with the Spirit at salvation, but... Guys, God is infinite. There's always more. There is always more of him. A pastor I, I like, John Piper, he, I've heard him talk about the Holy Spirit before. He said every time he gets up to preach, he prays, God, baptize me afresh with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. I think that that is an appropriate thing to pray, and that's an appropriate thing to, to be hungry for and go after. That, that desire to be filled with the spirit again and again and again. And the, the cool thing is the, the, the product of this is boldness. They get filled with the Spirit, and they continue to preach the Word of God with boldness. I have, there's an analogy um, I've heard my brother share recently, and I really like it. It's, it's like, think about the Holy Spirit this way. It's like the world is a kitchen, okay? And it's a dirty kitchen. There's messes everywhere, really dirty. And, and you're a sponge. And when Jesus ascended up into heaven, it's like the water came on, right? The water came on, um, first off, have you ever tried to clean anything with a, with a dry sponge? It, you don't get anything done. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't do anything with a dry sponge. But the Holy, the Holy Spirit, when Jesus sent up into heaven, it's like the water came on. And we as this sponge, can, we can go into that water and let go. Let go. Surrender. And what happens when you let go of a sponge when it's underwater? It gets filled. And it can go and it can clean up the kitchen, right, effectively, finally. It can do it effectively. 
before you're just putting a ton of elbow grease in. You might get a little bit of that nasty spaghetti sauce off the counter, but you're not going to be able to get it all off. But when that sponge is plunged under the water and, it, and it's let go of, it's, it's filled, right? And it can effectively clean and get things done. But then what do you have to do? Like, you've got to go back to the water and, and let go and be filled and go and clean and then go back to the water and let go. And guys, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit comes into you. But I, I want to be a person that is eager to be filled with the Spirit for the work of ministry so that I can continue to speak the word of God with boldness. I think the early church got this, and they were desperate for it, and we need to get this and be desperate for it. When we depend on and walk with the Holy Spirit in ministry, things happen. Jesus actually said it's to our advantage that he leaves, because when he leaves, he's going to send the helper. That's another name for the Holy Spirit. It's, it's better for us that he's gone, because when he's gone, the Spirit's going to be in us, and, and he's going to empower us to do the things that he did on the earth. Okay. My last point. I need to wrap this up. One of the things in this story I was most encouraged by, and I think this is important for us to, to understand and grab hold of if we want to live a lifestyle of evangelism, is this truth that nothing is going to stop God in the advance of his kingdom. Nothing is going to stop him. Not secular culture, not persecution, not demons, not war. Nothing is going to stop the advance of God's kingdom. You just think about this movement of Christianity over the, the ages. You think about all of the dictators and monarchs that just, they tried to like stomp this movement out and end it completely. And it's like the more people tried to end it, the stronger it got. <laughs> Nothing is going to stop it. And you look at this, uh, this Peter, he quotes um, in that last section I just read, he quotes Psalm 2. And I'm going to close just by reading uh, Psalm 2. And I think it really illuminates this idea that nothing can stop God in the advance of his kingdom. And worship team, you can come up. I'm going to give some, uh, some Jonathan commentary as I read this psalm. It's pretty short. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The, kingdom set the, the, king, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's the part Peter quotes. It's like he's, he's saying like the nations take counsel together against God and against his people. Why? Why is this happening? And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And then, and then we get God's response. The next, the next line is God's response. So you imagine, like, the nations, the, the psalmist David, he's like, why are the nations so against you, God? Why do the nations of the earth plot together against you and against your people? Why? And here's God's response to the nations of the earth and the kings of the earth being against him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about Jesus. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Kings of the earth that are plotting against God and his anointed, be wise. Watch out. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. I see two options in this psalm. The first option is set yourself against God. Don't submit to him. Be autonomous. Do whatever you want with your life. Enjoy the fleeting pleasures of your sin. And then I see the other option in the, the very end. And, and what's God's response? The Lord laughs. He's not threatened by the kings of the earth. He's not threatened by his opponents. Because he's the one true living God. He made everything. He's powerful. 
I see the other option is, is the last line of the song. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. God, nothing is going to stop the advance of God's kingdom. He's king. He's all-powerful. The day of judgment's coming eventually where he's going to judge the living and the dead. And we're either going to be judged faithful and we're going to be with him forever or we're not. But it's simple. Like, how do we get on the right side of God's judgment? It's by taking refuge in him. It's by following Jesus. It's by just accepting this invitation that he gives everyone. He's inclusive. The offer is available to everyone. And if, if you're in this room and you've not accepted that proposal, I, like, I, I plead with you. I, I don't want you to have to experience the wrath of God the rod of iron that it talks about in that psalm. And it's, it's, it's amazing how simple he makes it for us. He's like, just follow me. Just believe. Just follow me. It's just a decision. It costs you everything, but it's simple. And so my, my exhortation, I, I implore you on behalf of Christ in the language of the New Testament, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And if you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, like, live a lifestyle of evangelism. Because there's people that need, there's people that are not going to encounter Jesus until they encounter you. I heard a quote, you, you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. So let's be a church that lives a lifestyle of evangelism. Let's be a church that's sharing the gospel and filled with the Holy Spirit and not being led by fear. Because Jesus is worthy and he's going to win. His kingdom is going to come. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, you are amazing. And I thank you that you invite us into a grand purpose that is better and bigger than anything else. And so, God, I, I just pray that we'd be a church that's on fire. I pray that we'd be a church that is eager to preach the gospel to our family and our friends. I just pray right now against fear. I just pray that the, just the bondage of fear that grips so much of us and keeps us frozen and, and causes us to, to not talk to that stranger that you feel convicted to talk to, to not go pray for that person that, that catches your attention. I just pray in Jesus' name that fear would go right now and that we would be a people led by your spirit God, I pray that we would see opportunities to live out a lifestyle of evangelism every single day and that we would take them. God, I, I pray against distraction. We get so caught up in living for stuff that's inferior to the purpose that you offer us. God, I pray that we'd just be a people that are set apart, fully just devoted to you. And God, I pray that revival would happen on this campus, that people would meet you here, that, that we would see just power, like we'd see your power. God, our expectations wouldn't be set by what we're used to and what happens, like what we've seen in the past, but that our expectations would come from you and that we would see you do far more than you've ever done. And thank you, God, that you use common people, that we don't need to have anything special about us. So we just pray that you come, that your kingdom would come, God. We know it's coming, but we pray that it would come. Here is in heaven, God. We pray for revival. Pray that you'd empower us to live a lifestyle of evangelism. In Jesus' name.